know, I don't think leadership comes with authority. I think it, it comes with attitude and that can come at any level in your career. This is The Talent Show, a new podcast series from FT Talent, a hub of innovation from the Financial Times. It's hosted by under-30s for the under-30s around the world. This second series is about all the aspects the FT organization is covering today, from editorial to development, from data to talent. I am Virginia Stagni, and this is a guide we designed to inspire you to be the one driving innovation and change. Welcome to the show. Okay, so episode 46 of our talent show and today is a very, 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 very interesting episode for all of us guys because we're Chief Commercial Officer of the Financial Times, John Zalate, is here with us. Thank you, John. Good afternoon. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for asking me. Thank you so much for being with us. So being a CCO of a newspaper, uh, I believe you and I know you had a very interesting career path. Can you walk us through your journey in the workplace? Of course. Uh, I don't think it's that exciting, but um, if, if you do, I'll, I'll take your word for it. So I, I didn't have a particularly uh, outstanding academic career. I didn't do terribly well at school. Uh, I wasn't that interested in my studies. I don't think I was more interested in everything other than my studies, probably. Uh, so I left university and was pretty clueless. I didn't have anything professional in my qualification that pointed me in one direction or another. I don't think I'd particularly uh, experienced industries that had particularly sort of motivated me. I hadn't done much work experience. So I was pretty listless and sort of drifting around a little bit. Um, I, I did some landscape gardening for about two and a half years, which uh, I really enjoyed. Uh, it was a very practical job. You get dirty, you get sweaty, you get paid in cash on a Friday. You create something. And at the end of the week, you can say, here's my blood, sweat and tears, but that's what I've built. So there was, a, I suppose, something very satisfying about seeing something physical that you'd created. I don't think any of my jobs since then have perhaps had quite that same sense of satisfaction at the end of a week that is the hole that I dug that is the wall I built the waterfall I put in whatever um so I, so I really did enjoy that but I did feel a lot, a lot of my friends were moving to London I'd moved back home after university outside London so I, I felt like I needed to do something and I, and I probably was going to be something that involved words or language I'd worked on the student union magazine at, at university um so I, I moved to London I did a postgraduate in uh, printing and publishing because the internet hadn't been invented um otherwise it would have probably been a more digital course I guess if I was doing it now and I sort of fell into publishing as a consequence I saw an advert in the back of the Media Guardian which is where everybody in 1997 got their jobs in in media and publishing and it simply said do you want to get into publishing question mark call this number and with literally nothing else to do one afternoon I called the number Uh, I went along for an interview uh, with what turned out to be a recruitment agency I didn't realize that It turned out it was a job for advertising sales. I didn't know that. I didn't know what advertising sales was. I thought that was selling advertising, not selling space. I had no idea at all. But they were going to pay me £14,000 a year, which at that time in my life was an enormous sum of money. Uh, so I went along with it. So I sort of, I very much fell into publishing and advertising sales. But I learned quite quickly and I got a mentor quite quickly, sort of rather accidentally, that this was a brilliant industry. Like you, the, the, the process of someone having a thought and that ending up on a page that was printed and distributed and had influence amongst tens of thousands of people with a little magazine I was working on at the time, I thought was quite magical. I, you know, I thought it was quite an amazing process that it could go from A to Z in that way. And so I, I did sort of fall in love with it quite quickly. 
And I really enjoyed the sales side of it as well. I enjoyed getting to know people. It turned out I could do it. I was quite quite okay at it. Um, it was a satisfying thing. Someone would say yes. I could convince somebody. They'd say yes. Money turned up. Like wow, this is this is quite cool. So I so I really sort of got into it quite quickly. I think, and then became determined that of all the things that might lie in front of me, this is the thing that that I was going to do. So I suppose every aspect of my career subsequently has had a, a common thread in it, which I think is about creating value from an audience that, a, that journalism attracts. And increasingly, that's in very different and diverse ways, whether it's through um, sponsorship or through advertising or direct commercial revenues or through reader revenue and subscriptions. Really, the journalism sits at the heart of all of that. And my role, all of my roles ever since have been about creating value from, from that journalism. And how everything then started? So I guess your first role was quite junior in the uh, sales team, I guess? Yeah, uh, relatively so. So I, I started in publishing in 1997. Yeah. Uh, and the first title I ever worked on was called The Gas Installer Magazine, okay. which is a magazine for plumbers. Uh, but it's the best magazine for plumbers. And I think I've always tried, to, or subsequently, perhaps this is retrospective thinking, I've always worked for a market leader, <laughs> whether it's plumbing, technology, Uh, or, or, yeah. or business news, which is which is what we do now, and I think that that is very helpful in one's career to be to be part of something that's that's market leading. So, I started in a very junior role, but it was a small business, and it meant that I had to do lots of things. So I had to do the selling and the production, and chasing up the copy, and talking to the creative agencies, and talking to the editor about which page which ad was going to go on, talking to the printers about the reproduction, talking to the distributors about who was getting it. So I suppose quite early I was exposed to lots of different facets and dimensions of publishing, um, whereas perhaps if I'd taken a, a role in a bigger business, it would have been only sales that I'd done. But I was exposed to much more than that. But I, but I joined the FT in 2002 um, because I kept losing advertising business to the FT. And I thought, if you can't beat them, you need to join them. So I, I ruthlessly pursued a job at the FT <laughs> Uh, and got it in 2002. Um, I was here for three years till 2005. I had my head turned by more money. Uh, I went to the Times and the Sunday Times and Times Online. Um, I, I think in retrospect, money is not the, the best reason to move roles. Uh, and I did find when I went there that, that at the time, and I wouldn't speak for it now, it was singularly UK focused, singularly intent on beating its competitor and not looking more broadly at what I saw were emerging competitors in the shape of Facebook and Google. And it was still very heavily um, print-focused rather than thinking about what was becoming clearly the predominant media, which was, which was digital. And a very competitive internal environment as well, whereas I'd found the FT to be much more of a collaborative environment. So when I was asked to come back to the FT about 18 months later, it didn't take me too long to say, yes, okay, I'll, I'll see the error of my ways. I'll come back down the river okay. from Wapping. And I joined, rejoined the FT in 2007. Uh, and so I've been here ever since. And um, basically, would you just suggest what you just said to us in terms of like maybe someone starting a career in journalism or in the news and media business that is looking for that kind of growth mindset? They are not really clear on what's the role they want to uh, go for at the end of a journey, but they find it quite interesting, the ecosystem, the news ecosystem at, at large. Would you recommend maybe uh, to seek roles in uh, uh, smaller organizations or do you think in places like the FT, you can have that breadth of experiences? Well, I, I think naturally, sorry, it's a great question. I, I think naturally, smaller organizations are more likely to offer you that sort of thing and experience and exposure to different sorts of roles so that perhaps you can figure out what you're best at doing, what interests you most. Um, 
but equally a smaller organization isn't going to give you necessarily the career development opportunities that you might get somewhere bigger. So, so it is a little tougher. But I think bigger organizations are getting savvier to the fact that whilst you need domain experts and people do need to work in silos, actually, or silos slash area, you know, zones of expertise, really the future is about hiring people who have a good understanding of how the whole piece fits together. And I think that's probably a hallmark of, of digital publishing, really, is that everybody needs to understand everybody's role at least a little bit. Otherwise, it, it doesn't really work. So I think the future uh, skill sets that I look for in, in staff are those that can understand how the pieces of the puzzle fit together, what their role is, what I call glue people, people who are uh, sufficiently capable and competent of pulling together those those parts of the puzzle and, and sticking them together into something coherent. So I, I think it's a brilliant idea to get as, as broad an exposure to different parts of the profession as you as you possibly can. So how does a, a, a day look like for, for you, John, here at FT? So what, do you have any special habits or routines? And especially from a, a glue perspective, how do you manage so many people and how do you make them feel part of uh, the same team? Uh, well, let me start with that bit then. So so I, I don't directly have to manage all of them. Uh, we, have, we have a structure that we can rely on, which, which is super helpful. Uh, and I think that's important. There is an important point in that because I can't possibly do my job without having an incredible executive team that work underneath me and are responsible for different parts of the business. And those different parts of the business have um, you know, different goals, different KPIs, different indicators of success, and different cultures as well. So I think my job is to try and find the commonality between those, those different parts of the business and, and indicate to them what it all adds up to, what the bigger picture looks like and what their role in that, in that is. Um, but in terms of a, a typical day, I suppose, well, I've got three relatively young children. So um, a lot of my... Well, a, decent amount of my schedule is dictated by their schedule um, and I think that's become increasingly true since since hybrid working has um, uh, has been the way that we we go about our business it means I'm at home more it means I can help with the school run you know in between doing some work or take them to hockey practice or whatever and I, and I really enjoy that that's a really healthy way I think for me to keep some balance in in what I do um, but I suppose a little bit more professionally than that I try and exercise every morning so I try and run at least three four times a week I go to the gym twice a week that feels to me uh, kind of necessary I find it quite hard to settle if I haven't done something like that but it, it also gives me I think a sort of a boost in energy to go out and do that sort of thing and it's good almost sort of meditative time I really love the, uh, I want to say the spiritual side of running might be a bit much but I, I, I like what running does to my head, not okay. just not just my legs. So so that's really important to me. Um, I try and read at least eight articles from the FT every morning before I start work, and I read FT weekend at the weekend. But but the FT is my main source of, of news. That's that's what I what I read from, and so that's a you know those are kind of my daily habits routines, I suppose. Um, then a, a typical day is a lot of team meetings, a lot of one to one meetings. Today I'm doing four sort of public speaking like things. This okay. is. One of them. I've done two speeches today. I've got another one to do this evening. So um, uh, that that sort of dominates today. Yeah. Yesterday was dominated by preparation for all of that and thinking yeah. about how that's going to come together. Um, lots of cross-departmental work. So uh, I mentioned the importance, I think, of that earlier, um, that if I if we're not thinking in a cross-departmental way, then the company's not going to function effectively. So part of my job is to understand what other departments are doing, interact with them, draw them together, and either chair or participate in, in lots of cross-departmental meetings that we have. 
And then a ton of coaching, a ton of mentoring, planning, budgets, numbers, strategy, that sort of thing. I, th I think it's pretty varied, generally, having said all of that. I don't think any two days look ever the same, um, but they always look quite busy. And when you're talking here about uh, cross-departmental collaboration, how we keep the kind of healthy, good quality journalism, but also how we keep the business in shape and sustainable. So, so I, th I think it's perfectly possible to have um, both both those things. You can have a collaborative organisation where departments, and you've called out two in particular, editorial and commercial, I think there are many other contributors to cross-departmental ways of working, not least product and technology or finance or HR, all of whom are critical part and legal, all of whom are critical dimensions of what I do every day. But if we look at those two departments, commercial generally and editorial specifically, I think it's perfectly possible to have a collaborative organisation where there are shared objectives and shared projects that they work on without that compromising the the, the core um, value of the FT, the core thing that, that keeps us special and different, which is the integrity of our journalism, in other words, the church and, and state. I think it's church and state, not church or state, by the way, because I think church or state implies you can have one or the other. Church and state, to me, suggests you can have an effective relationship between the two. Clearly, the integrity of our journalism is the thing that drives our business. It drives our audience. It is the audience that I'm responsible for monetizing. And if we uh, if we in any way impinge that integrity, then I don't have an audience that wants to read the FT. I can't sell them subscriptions. I can't ask them to come to any of our events. I can't ask them to to read the, the newspaper or the website and look at the advertising that we've sold. So <clears throat> I, I, the, the, we have to safeguard that. It is what we have safeguarded since the beginning of the FT 130 plus years ago. Uh, and, it, and it's completely vital to what we do. But you can still, and in particular in a digital publishing age, have effective dialogue and effective relationships that mean if this is an area that editorial is interested in exploring is this something we can also effectively market to our subscribers well if you get a tick in both boxes great that feels like something we should collectively work on together that doesn't mean we influence the words it doesn't mean we influence the topics that somebody in in editorial might cover and there are lots of articles which are directly critical of some of the industries which we gain significant commercial value from, or indeed some of our clients. And they are rightly critical. I might criticise some of those articles, but they are rightly critical. Uh, and, and that is the right of the newsroom to do so. So uh, I, I don't see that the two things need to be in, in conflict with one another at all. Based on a lot of the projects that you have been sponsoring or working on, I think you do listen a lot to younger people and younger co-workers. Um, when did you start doing that? Were you doing this from the very, very beginning of your career, of human Nigeria roles? And why do you pay so much attention to mentoring younger people in the organization and even outside? Well, I, I know you haven't teed me up for this question, but the, I think the first time I paid attention to someone younger was when you knocked on my door about seven years ago and said, can you help me with my dissertation? And I, and I don't think anyone had ever done that before. And I thought, well, that's really admirable that someone's, you know, bothered to find out who I am and bothered to get in touch and has asked me a question. And I felt, I think, probably, uh, I suppose, in a way, flattered that I had that you'd asked and that I maybe had some experience which might be useful to you. And I couldn't really... Well, good. And, and, I, and I couldn't really see any justifiable reason. I mean, not that it occurred to me, but I, I can't subsequently see any justifiable reason why one would say no to that. So... Um, you know, if you can make 
10 minutes of your time available to somebody for whom that's disproportionately helpful, yeah. it seems to me just a sort of decent human thing to do. Um, but I think young people have um, uh, a perspective on life that, that, as I get older, clearly I don't have, um, which means their ideas are fresh. Uh, I want the, the FT to be a brand that is applicable uh, to younger people. I want them to read it when they're younger. I want them to get that habit when they're young and, and read it into their, you know, as, as they develop through their life and through their career. And I think the FT is a very useful thing for you in that sense. So if we're going to try and connect with that audience, then we ought to sort of listen to what it is that they're interested in, whether that's you know, the type of content, the format, um, whether, you know, the format of the journalism or perhaps the format of the product as well. So, uh, you know, and, and what are their views on the world? You know, if I want to hire young people, I sort of probably ought to understand a little bit about what's motivating them in their career. I think what's motivating young people to join the media industry now uh, is is very different to what it was when that motivated my generation of joining the media industry, particularly on perhaps the commercial side. I, I think in in the late 90s or through the 90s when I was joining the media industry, it was a really social and sociable industry there were a lot of liquid lunches it was yeah. take your client out for drinks if you can keep them out all afternoon do it you know it was yeah. parties a lot all of the time and that's true in the agency scene it was true in the media owner scene i think it's less true perhaps in the brand side but actually having said that i can think of some examples where it certainly wasn't either <laughs> but but i think over the time that's that's not really a part so much i mean clearly it's still a sociable industry but i don't think that's what people get into it for they don't get into it for the expense account uh, or the or the trips overseas, right? It, it, they get into it much more from a mission point of view. I think there's they are motivated, and I think it's right that they are, by the purpose of what the FT does, which is to create brilliant journalism that helps people make better decisions and to do it in a way that isn't influenced by by any by any outside force. Um, that that has a good for the world that delivers a good to the world in my view and i think that is a good mission and a good purpose to be part of and a good motivation to get into the industry and, and to get into a career specifically with the ft but but elsewhere too obviously and i think that's what you are looking for in uh, younger joiners right and people that might take um a new role here at ft it's um, it's just a curious to me like what are the kind of questions or how do you detect these uh, so soft skills aside rather than the hard skills during uh, an interview or doing just a coffee with someone that might be an interesting candidate? Well, I'm really interested in what people have been doing outside of work. Have they travelled? What did they get from their travels? What if there were a couple of lessons that they have learnt from their travel around the world or their, you know, gap year or uh, their, their early part of their career? What are the sort of things that they're extracting from it? So are they thinking in a way... Uh, which goes beyond, I turn up for work, I do my job, I leave. Are they sort of looking at their work and their career over a period of time and saying, well, if I think about it, the sort of skills and things and lessons I've learned are these. Have they tried to connect with uh, a mentor um, or a coach, probably a mentor? Um, uh, and what, what, what's, what's that taught them? Um, I think those sort of things, to me, are um, indicative of curiosity I think curiosity is is probably, I mean, it's one of the FT's key values. Um, it's written on my water bottle, so it must be true, but I, but I think it actually is true. Uh, and, and I think that's such a vital part of anybody who wants to get into any job or any career is that they're curious about where it's going. And what we know about, well, the world that we live in, but the media industry 
specifically is that what it looks like now is not what it's going to look like in five years' time. So is somebody curious enough to have thought that far ahead? What do they think about where the industry's going? Um, and what do they think about where it's come from? And, I, and I'm a great believer that to do well in a job, I think you have to be a student of where your business has come from. When I got into the media industry, I tried to read as much as I possibly could about the advertising industry, the people, the players, the politics, the regulation. Um, and and it you know it was interesting. I enjoyed it. Uh, it I guess had I not found it interesting, it would have been a good alarm to say, this isn't the business for you then. So so I'm interested. Has, have people done their research and their homework on the industry? Have they done it on the FT? Do they read the FT? I'm still astonished by the number of people that put themselves forward for interview at the Financial Times without reading the Financial Times. So as a note, don't do that because it's the quickest way to end an interview with me or my team. Um, uh, and have they thought about where the industry is going? So I think those are the sort of things that that sense of curiosity, that's pretty key for me. In terms of leadership style, how would you um, describe your leadership style? And did it evolve over time, especially in these past more than 15 years at FT? I, I think leadership is about... Um, being able to work with people around you and encourage them to get the best out of themselves for themselves or for the team that you're a part of. And I suppose if I think about the earlier part of my career, I'd like to think that I would that I demonstrated good leadership skills, empathy, um, uh, a sense of direction, um, motivation, helpfulness, that sort of thing. Uh, even I had, though I had no position of, of authority, um, when you get into a position of authority, well, it sort of comes with the job. So you you better get on that by that point. So I, I think I think that's a really good point that you make and, and one worth underlining. I don't think leadership comes with authority. I think it it comes with attitude, and that can come at any level in your career. And then you think when it changed uh, lately, uh, maybe after um, having three daughters, did, do you, did you see a change as well in your ways of being a leader? Well, I think one of the skills that I've found difficult as I've, I guess, become more senior is, is the requirement to communicate with people effectively um, through others and, and at scale. That's a lot harder. Like if you're a team leader of five people, which I think was the first team I ever had, if you want to communicate with a team, you say, right, we're all going up to the canteen and I'm going to tell you what I think we need to be doing. Great. When you've got a team of 550 people, you can't really do that. Um, so the sort of skills, the language you use, the degree to which you can be granular, i.e. you can't, changes, um, tone really really matters you don't often get a chance a chance to say oh no no i didn't mean that i meant it like this yeah. like you you've, you've got to be a lot more thoughtful and careful about your communication style so so i think that's 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 and i and i'm certainly not saying i get all that right but um i think those are the that's one of the significant changes i've seen in terms of leadership as i've become more senior has having children affected my leadership oh i don't know that's a good question um i think maybe it's made me more concerned to ensure uh that the younger generation i've got i mean and also i've got three girls so maybe you know female employees i don't know maybe there's something in that have equal opportunity within the within the company maybe that's subconsciously happening i don't know i haven't really thought about it like that i will give that a bit more thought good question what is your view um of course uh, um in a sum-up way when it, when we when it comes to um the disruptions and the, the future 
of uh, technology and the impact that Visa has on, uh, maybe let's take it from this side, the business model of uh, journalism, the open user side. Well, I, I noticed last evening that I'd spent the whole day without anybody mentioning artificial intelligence. And it stuck out to me as one of the first days where nobody had mentioned artificial intelligence since about March this year. And I thought that felt quite strange. Um, so so clearly, and I don't know if that's at the heart of what you're saying, but I mean, clearly that is, that's the big thing today, isn't it? And it is, uh, I don't think it is overstating it to say that it is a paradigmatic shift that we're facing. I think AI is likely to be highly disruptive. I think it will disrupt the world, our lives, the business, the FT, probably more dramatically and critically faster than the internet did. Um, so there's two sides to that. One, oh my goodness, how on earth are we going to react to it? That sounds terrifying. The other is, in a way, we've seen this movie before. So mm -hmm. when the internet came along over a period of about eight to 10 years, there was an enormous disruption to the media and news business and, and how we ran our business. As a consequence of that, we have swung entirely, pretty much entirely, from a print-focused business to a digital business, uh, from an advertising-focused business to a subscription-focused business, or rather a multi-revenue line business. And that has been incredibly, uh, an incredibly healthy position to now be in. So I'm not saying we've won, that we, that we won the internet war, but we've been successful in navigating it and the problems and pitfalls whether those are regulatory or policy-led or competitive-led or business model-led in, in the way that we have. So I think we're in a better place as a consequence of that. So I take heart from that, that we are capable of responding to other equally disruptive forces. I think this time we just need to probably run a bit quicker because I think it's all going to happen a lot, lot faster. There are risks. There are opportunities. Uh, there is, I think, the very significant risk that artificial intelligence synthesizes news and creates a, a, a disintermediation effect. Again, very similar to, to to what search and social did to the news business with all of the you know, massive and ongoing fallout effect that that's had for the economics of the news business. Um, I think there is a, a very big risk around disinformation and misinformation, um, either by bad actors or inadvertently. Um, both of those things, I think, point to me to underlining what we already do, which is safeguard our brand, produce brilliant journalism, and ensure that consequently we are a destination that people want to, have to visit to get the news that helps them with their life. If we fail to do that, then of course we'll be disrupted out of the game. But frankly, that's only what we've ever been doing for the last 130 plus years. So everything's going to get quicker. It's going to be, all be a bit more dramatic. Have the fundamental rules or challenges changed? At one level, I don't think they have. I think that's pretty true. A lot of ethical questions uh, in what you are mentioning here. So one very last question. What was a moment in your career where you learned the most? Maybe there was a moment that you find quite challenging or maybe a mistake that you made that you learned the yeah. most from. Uh, okay, well, the, the thousands of mistakes, but let me pick one. Um, I, When I was in the advertising business, my first time around at the FT, I was responsible for our technology advertising. So this would be about 2003 or four, something like that. And um, we went to give a very big pitch to Microsoft and their advertising agency. And uh, they had a very renowned media director who ran that part of the business who was uh, quite scary, and I won't mention her name. And I got about one minute into this very big pitch, and she interrupted me and said, I'm, she said, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm just going to stop you there. She said, if this doesn't get more exciting, and this was in front of the client and her team and my team, she said, if this doesn't get any more exciting, you might as well stop now. 
And I thought, oh, my God. And then the world felt like it had sort of fallen out from underneath me. And I'd sort of obviously realized that whatever I was going to present, I, I couldn't present. And we had had another idea, which we'd thrown out as being too risky and, and a bit silly, and they wouldn't go for that anyway. But I could still remember what it was. So rather than relying on the slides, I gave a sort of verbal account of what I thought would be you know, an interpretation of that more risky idea. And, and the client loved it, and the agency loved it, and, and they went with it, and they bought it, and, and it was worth lots of money, and, and everything was wonderful. So... So that was a moment which which went from disaster to sort of happiness quite quickly. But I think what it taught me was uh, you've got to be agile and flexible when you're in business. And, and if you just stick to the, to the one approach, you've had it. And always, always have a plan B. If you haven't got a plan B, I don't think you've got a plan A either. This is so interesting. I love it. I would have asked you so many more questions, but we are running out of time. Thank you so much, John. Now, question time with two young people out there. We got Anna and Sujai to ask some questions to John. Anna, over to you. Hi, um, my name is Anna. I'm currently a second year student studying international social and public policy at LSE. And outside of uni, I'm really interested in the emerging trends of different industries and like what's the future like for FT. Um, I'm currently working in like a student consultancy. So we like really, these questions of, often come up when we work with clients. So my question for John is um, just with the increasing focus in sustainability, um, what are like some of the key opportunities or challenges do you think um, in these space um, in terms of for FT? Uh, well, it, it's a very big question, and I probably don't have time to go into all of the answer. Um, but I think I, I can certainly say that getting the FT into a good position around sustainability has been a focus for a, a, a number of years now. And I think we've made very good strides and good progress corporately as an organisation. Uh, there's a number of dimensions to it. There's there's our emissions and our uh, our sustainability, environmental sustainability in terms of what we do corporately, the carbon emissions that that creates. But there's also the influence that the brand has and the journalism has. And that's probably a bigger influence on the debate of the climate emergency, actually, than the emissions of, of the company itself. I think there is a really interesting area within that that, that I'm exploring at the moment that, that it might be interesting for you to hear about, which is the concept of advertised emissions. So we are a business that has a high dependency on advertising. We sell a lot of advertising every year, but we also buy a lot of advertising every year. And at the heart of the advertising industry, really, is the intent to convince somebody to buy more stuff. Right? That's really what advertising is about, either directly or, or indirectly. And those sales then create carbon emissions that arguably wouldn't exist had the advertising not happened, right? Uh, so if you advertise a car, if as a consequence of that car, you sell 10 more cars than you would have done, those 10 cars create emissions, unless they're EV cars, obviously. Who's accountable for that? And who's taking responsibility for it? So is it the media owner, the publisher that ran the ads? Is it the brand, the car brand? Or is it the agency that created the ads so very effectively? It is very hard to calculate that, but I think it's worthwhile trying to calculate it. And there's a group of people uh, led by an organization called Purpose Disruptors. I really recommend you check out their website. It's purposedisruptors.org, who are saying, this is unacknowledged so far, but there is a method that we can create that calculates those emissions. It's the same sort of thing as financed emissions, actually, which is already well established in the finance industry. 
Um, so how do we create the calculation and then who takes accountability for it? And I think that's a critical thing for the industry to get its head around. And, and I'm part of a group of people that are trying to break that break that problem down and, and try and come up with some solutions for it. So that gives you some sense, I guess, of, of where I think there are both opportunities, but also some, some risks and concerns too. That's really interesting. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you so much. And Sujai, I know you are part of the St. London Strategic Consulting Team. How are you today? Tell us a bit more about you. Uh, that's right. I am doing great. I am Sujay and I'm currently a second year mechanical engineering student at UCL. And I'm also a part of London Strategic Consulting, same as Anna. I love reading about business trends in a similar way. That's why we both are working in a consultancy. And my question to you, John, is a bit more towards artificial intelligence. So how do you, like with the rise of artificial intelligence since November last year, how do you see generative AI coming into play into like Financial Times journalism? Uh, well, I think the first thing we have to do is break down the word journalism a little bit, because uh, if we mean, would we ever get to a point where we would press a button and as a consequence of pressing that button, an article appears, and I've seen generative AI technology that does exactly that, um, then that's not really what we're about at the FT. Um, that isn't what our readers come to us for. Uh, if we think about other applications of generative AI, though, which might be um, much faster and perhaps even more accurate um, charts, illustrations, data visualizations, um, those sort of assets become very valuable to readers. And I, and I see no reason why generative AI can't play a part in the industrialization of the production of that sort of thing, which otherwise is a, a very hard and manual long process. So I think that's that's one aspect of it. It does call into question, is a, is a, is a data visualization as the same sort of journalism? Should we consider it the same as we do a six, 700, 800 word article? If not, why not? It's still telling a story. So, but I think there's something around the production side of, of assets that accompany journal, journalism that, that's, that's worth, um, uh, worth thinking through. But I think there's also something that generative AI does very well is take massive sets of data and summarize them. So is there a tool, for example, that we could create that looks at the entire archive of VFT and which you could pose questions to? And it seems like people use generative AI in, in quite a sort of question response type way. It seems to be quite an intuitive way for people to use those, those tools. Is there a way that we could help our readers ask questions of our archive that come up with summarized versions of, of long and complex stories? So can you tell me, what are the causes of the Ukraine war? Like, well, okay, well, I can give you a list of 50 articles that might make you smart on that, or I can give you a synthesization of those 50 FT articles, uh, and, and that'll get you there faster, and perhaps link to all of those articles as well if you want to go a little bit deeper. So those are the sort of applications that we're going to think about. Um, what we're not going to get to, as I say, is, is press a button and bingo, uh, there's a piece of journalism. That's, that's, not, that's not what we're about, uh, and it's not what people will pay us for. Um, but it's a, it's a fascinating space, and I'm talking about it all in a very opportunistic way. You know, there's great things that we can do. There are risks within all of this, of course, as well, and I spoke about them a little bit earlier. But um, I think it's a fascinating time. It's incredibly stimulating for somebody, particularly at my point of, uh, of their career, to not go, oh, well, we'll just kind of drift into retirement at this point. You know, wow, I've got to get my head around this. So I'm doing some internships with some AI businesses just a couple of days here and there over the next few months to see what happens when you go under the hood. Uh, I'm reading a lot. I'm doing a lot of studying. You know, this is great. This is a moment to sort of ingest a lot more information myself uh, and see what comes out, comes out the other side. So I'm, so I'm excited by the prospect of that. 
Certainly. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks for the questions. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, thank you so much, John. Definitely, you made our mind garden today greener. So to go back to your gardening first experience, full of tips, full of advices. Uh, as usual, I recommend you guys to listen to all the other Financial Time podcasts, wherever you get to podcast. Thank you so much. This has been The Talent Show, which is produced by the FT Talent Team, Aya Al-Shihabi, and me, Virginia Stani. Our podcast producer, editor and sound engineer is Arturo Ochoa, and our social media producer is Letizia Clementi. Our music is by Dennis Kishuk. Check out all of the Talent Show episodes at fttalent.ft.com, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and follow FT Talent on socials for updates. Until next time, and keep listening. Keep listening.